we will, I think, have an opportunity to get to a place where we have a more balanced view of transportation, and one that starts not with the presumption that the primary goal of a transportation system is to move cars, but instead that says the primary goal of the system is to move people. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. This summer, we're speaking with local leaders about what they're doing to make Boston a stronger, healthier, and more livable city. Today, I'm joined by Yasha Franklin Hodge, Chief of Streets for the City of Boston. I talked with Yasha about how the pandemic impacted the streets of Boston, what the Wu administration is doing to improve our outdoor quality of life, and how he weighs the trade-offs of buses versus bikes versus cars now and as driverless vehicles become predominant. Yasha, it's so great to speak with you today. I'm so excited, actually, to have this conversation. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation and uh, really excited to speak with you. Wonderful. So let's start at where you are today. You're the chief of streets, but you have a much longer title than that. Can you talk about what you do for the city of Boston? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the full title is Chief of Streets, Transportation and Sanitation. But really, my role in my office oversees two major city departments. One is the Boston Transportation Department, the other is the Boston Public Works Department. And these two departments sort of combined cover a huge array of services from plowing snow, picking up trash, issuing parking tickets, designing streets, repairing sidewalks, rebuilding new streets, you know, building bus lanes and bike lanes. We really cover an enormous amount of ground. Almost everything both of these part departments do touches on streets and in some ways impacts policy and you know operation of how how our streets work how they feel how they function you know just one example of this right is if we're building a bike lane in the city we have to make sure we can plow and sweep that bike lane we have to have the right equipment it has to be the right size so by bringing these teams together it gives us the opportunity to start to really shape a long-term vision for how we want the streets of boston to evolve and then make sure we've got all the different pieces from from planning and design and construction to operations and maintenance all kind of synced up and and hopefully rowing in the same direction. Okay. And talk about your background a little bit. Also, you worked for Mayor Walsh. You were the CIO, right? Of the the chief information officer doing something completely different and primarily technology related. Where'd you come from? How did you end up in that role? It's an interesting crossover, right? Like like being in charge of data and information and now being in charge of streets and the care of those streets. Can you just talk a little bit about how this is all weaving together? Yeah, I ask myself that every day. Um, <laughs> but, uh, my, uh, I think the background for me, I mean, I, I came actually out of the private sector before coming into this role, but I did a lot of work with political campaigns with nonprofits. So it was very sort of public sector and public interest adjacent. And I've always been a big believer in the role of government, the importance of government, you know, the need for government takes a lot of hits for, oh, you know, it doesn't do enough or it's not competent enough. Or, But, you know, when we sort of think about all of the ways as we go about our day that are only possible because we do have good government services. We have we have roads that we can travel on. We have you know schools that we can send our kids to. We have the public safety services we rely on. Our trash gets picked up. Like there's just, you know, every single day, there's dozens and dozens of ways that that a, a functional, effective government, especially at the local government, really impacts our lives. And 
that doesn't just happen, right? That happens because there are thousands of dedicated employees working for the city doing that work. But it also happens because we have leaders who are looking at not just the way it is today, but how things can change, what investments we need to make. And so for me, as a technologist in my background, recognizing that for government to be able to continue to deliver all those things that we rely on for it to continue to be effective and, and a, you know, and it's not always perfect, but for it to continue to, to, to kind of be the, the backbone of our city, that we needed good technology. We needed to make investments in the kinds of systems that would give us data that would allow us to respond more agilely to things that were happening. And so that was kind of the impetus for me to kind of take my private sector technology skills and say, how do I put this to use for the public good? And there's sort of nowhere where that was more clear and obvious to me than in local government. It's a challenging job in many ways, a stressful job in many ways, but you never, ever, ever, ever wonder whether the work you do matters. You literally see it outside your window every single day. And it's just, you know, in some ways it can be so fulfilling. All right. Let's talk about the city first, and then we'll talk about the data layer of the city. So the the city, the city's super old, right? And there's, I, I think, very complicated when it comes to management of streets, particularly probably the older parts of the city. Is that a true statement? Yeah, very much so. You know, we have 800 miles of streets in Boston. Some of those streets have been around in one form or another for almost 400 years. And uh, there's a lot of history here. And the the city has evolved through a lot of different eras, right? There were obviously no cars when many of these streets were laid down and the population was different. The job centers have changed. We've just seen so much develop in that incredible history. And our job is to sort of both recognize that history and and appreciate it, but also to evolve and evolve the city in ways that meet where we are today and where we want to go, even more importantly. But we kind of have, like, what we have to work with is what we have to work with when we talk about places like the Financial District or Beacon Hill or some of these older spots in Boston, which probably makes it maybe more complicated than if you're planning a new city in terms of how you think about where do we put down bike lanes Can we put more buses on roads? What are the goals for the city kind of over the long term to move us away from being car heavy and probably driverless systems factor into that as well and moving more towards, you know, giving people options around mobility that are safe? I maybe just start by reflecting on the fact that in some ways I think our age is, is an asset as we think about that future vision. You know, if you look at cities that, were built in the latter half of the 20th century or that, that really had their, their growth in that time period, you know, take like a Phoenix, right? That's your archetypal example of that. These are cities that were built ground up for cars. And there are now, we're sort of, you know, and I'm not going to pass judgment on sort of where people want to live or the built environment they want to have, but we really can see, certainly at a climate level, the profound consequences of that. We can see the implications of that car-centric mentality from a safety perspective, with more than 40,000 Americans dying on roadways every year. There's public health dimensions to that kind of car-centric way of building. And so, in some ways, the fact that Boston, for the most part, was laid out before the car was the dominant mode of transportation 
means that we didn't lean in as hard as many cities did to some of the things that we're now looking at and saying, maybe that wasn't the best choice, right? Maybe our land use could be denser and that would deliver, you know, sort of better public outcomes, more equity, more safety, more environmental sustainability, right? Maybe our approach to transit or approach to, to active transportation like biking could be sort of better baked into the fabric of the community. So, you know, there's certainly challenges with having old narrow streets and, you know, you can't put a car lane, a parking lane, a bus lane, and a bike lane on a street that's 30 feet wide, right? So it doesn't necessarily make it easy, but I think in some ways, a lot of urban planning in the last 30, 40 years has learned or relearned a practice that looks in some ways more like streets pre-automobile. It's about dense neighborhoods that are walkable, that provide a mix of services to people that they can access easily. It's about focusing on the human level experience and the human scale in the public realm so that people can feel comfortable and connected to place and not just sort of like they're in in an anonymous landscape of roads and strip malls, right? Like these are the lessons that I think urban planners have been relearning. And in some ways, what they're learning is that Boston, cities that look like Boston are, are can be really amazing places and we should have more of them. So, so you know, f- for us, it's like, let's build on that incredible asset that we have and that history that we have and let's figure out the places we need to transform it or we need to undo some transformations that were done in the past. But I consider it a, an incredible place to work and in some ways easier than other places. But I think the big picture, right, Boston, like every city, kind of had a pre-automobile era and then an automobile era and we're not Obviously, in a post-automobile era, we probably will never be in a post-automobile era, but we will, I think, have an opportunity to get to a place where we have a more balanced view of transportation. And one that starts not with the presumption that the primary goal of a transportation system is to move cars, but instead that says the primary goal of the system is to move people to connect people to jobs, to connect people to school, to get people to the services and the retail that they need, to give people places that they can consider community spaces that are public, right? Like these, this, if we start to look at our streets through that lens, it really reshapes a lot of the very then tactical and specific decisions we make about how much road space to give to the different uses, about how to uh, design and plan a sidewalk about how to even things like how we time our traffic signals comes down. There's some real priority and value judgments embedded in that kind of decision making. And when we start to take that moving people, connecting people frame, we can start to revisit and revise some of the decisions that we've made. And in some cases, redesign the places that we've built to really reflect that more human scale way of thinking about a city. And that's really, I think, at the core of the work we're trying to do. So how do you think about different parts of the city? Because because they behave differently in terms of moving people and connecting people. And so in like Back Bay and Beacon Hill, South End, different parts of Roxbury and Dorchester, you see people walking around centers, moving about a lot on foot, a lot on bicycle, as well as, you know, lots of cars and, and buses and et cetera, and the T. Then there's other parts of the city where you move through that space and people are not outside and they're not walking, they're not biking. How do you think about improving the lives and the days and the access for people in, in parts of the city where it doesn't look like, you know, other parts of the city that are very, very vibrant and people are moving around all day long outside on foot? Yeah. 
I mean, I guess I maybe start by just saying, like, like when we look at certainly when we look at Boston as a city, there is a great deal of diversity in uh, land use, in travel patterns, and, and mode use uh, in different parts of the city. But I will say, all of Boston, and, and truly all of Boston, right, has a model of development of design that does create opportunities for people to move without cars, right? And there are neighborhoods who look at parts of West Roxbury that are sort of very suburban in their construction, but every street has a sidewalk and there's a sidewalk on both sides of the street. We take that for granted in Boston, right? There are places in this country where that is a luxury to have a sidewalk in your neighborhood, right? Every neighborhood has parks that are within walking distance to those parks, right? And that may not be that people are walking to the grocery store or that they're riding a bike to get to work, but there are things that they can access that are valuable, that are public amenities. You know, we have trees in most of the city, which makes walking possible in places where often it would not be if you didn't have some kind of shade. We certainly need more of that. So I think we actually do have a lot, even in neighborhoods that aren't in the sort of the, the dense inner core neighborhoods, but always with transportation, you, you have to think at multiple scales. You have to think at the citywide and, and the region-wide scale. We don't do enough of that, right? Because we often, it's like, oh, Boston's here. And then it's like, but, but, you know, there's actually a lot of communities around us and we like to go there. So, you know, we have to plan for that, right? So you have to think at the region-wide scale. We have to think at the city-wide scale. But we also have to think at neighborhoods. We have to think about, you know, in certain places, a given design of a street makes more sense than in, a, in another neighborhood. We have streets downtown where 75% of the people moving on the street are on foot. And how you design a street where that's the case versus a street where it's 5% is going to be very different. Now, there's a baseline that we believe needs to exist everywhere, right? So you should always be able to move about the city safely on foot. Even in a neighborhood that's sort of more spread out, if we require people to own a vehicle and, and maintain a vehicle to meet their basic needs, we are putting a huge sort of the table stakes for living in that neighborhood become extraordinarily expensive. You know, the typical American family vehicle costs the family $9,000 a year all in with depreciation and fuel and, and taxes and maintenance, right? That's an enormous amount of money to say, you know, you can't even live here unless you can put in that that money to have the vehicle to get where you need to go. So having a baseline of public transit everywhere in the city is essential, I believe, to having an equitable city and having a city where people, no matter where they are, no matter what their income level is, can participate and can be you know, a sort of fully connected member of the community. So I think establishing those baselines is really important. But without a doubt, when we're at the neighborhood level, right, you know, different neighborhoods have different existing patterns. They have different ways of thinking about what their aspirations and goals are. There are different challenges in different neighborhoods and different sort of cultural dynamics at play in different neighborhoods, you know, different histories, different languages, different communities of origin. And so that also has to be a factor in how we think about building and designing our streets. And we need to listen to that. And that's not an easy task because, you know, I sit here in City Hall and you know, I have my kind of bird's eye view of, you know, the, the what I think the city is and what it should be. But, you know, I don't know every block. I don't know every neighborhood. I don't know the dynamics. You know, even something as simple as safety, I think about it often, most often through the lens of like, will I be hit by a car if I'm walking or riding my bike? For some people in some neighborhoods, what they're thinking about is, 
if I walk on the street, if I walk with my kid on the street, are they safe from gun violence? Do I feel do I feel like law enforcement is there to help or that I'm worried about the interactions I may have with them? Right. That that for some neighborhoods and communities is the primary safety concern. And if we don't acknowledge that and we don't listen to that and we don't start to build processes that can incorporate the diversity of frames of reference and perspective that exist in the city, we're not going to be doing our job to build great streets and, and, and neighborhoods that work for people. Yeah, well, you know, we were on a tour a couple of years back now of vacant lots that the city owns. And, and we, the city owns quite a few and they're kept very, you know, nicely. They're they're kept up very well. But do you think about, you know, is there, are there conversations at City Hall about what could we be doing with those spaces to make those city streets safer, more energized so that, you know, we don't worry as much about, you know, gun violence and and things happening in those spaces because those spaces are actually full of people who, you know, are, are thriving. I'm always curious about, you know, what can we do to the infrastructure to help support positive behavior? Yeah, that's a great question. And I I mean, the first thing I'll say is that we're trying to turn as many of those vacant lots as we can into housing, um, ideally affordable housing. We have a housing crisis in the region. We also just completed uh, a citywide land audit to look at all the city, we all the land the city owns and its potential and everything from lots that have existing city facilities on them all the way to, you know, vacant parcels. If we're going to be serious about maximizing construction of new housing and, and creation of more affordable housing, we have to start with the assets we have and, you know, and be willing to get more creative than just saying like, what's a vacant lot and what can we put on it? But also like, you know, should we be consolidating facilities or moving facilities to make better use of the property that we have? So that's, a, I think, a really active conversation. But I think I think that broader question of sort of, you know, when we think about public space, right, there's a couple of dimensions to it. There's the sort of you know, is it fulfilling its purpose as a transportation link? Does it work? Is it safe? And then there's another deeper layer around design, which is, have we created a space that just feels like a plate, a, a space you use to go through somewhere? Or is it a space that you would use to be somewhere? And there's a lot of different dimensions to that, right? It's about, you know, how much space you allocate for, like, is there a bench? Is there a place to sit? Are there trees and greenery? Is it pleasant? Is it loud? Is it, you know, smoggy? Is it a place that sort of has uh, aspects of the community that inhabits it reflected into the public realm, right? Is there art? Are there sort of, you know, do businesses draw the line at their facade or do they flow out into the sidewalk? Are the public facilities, the parks, the schools, the libraries, do they feel like they're you know, islands that you travel to, or are they connected into the larger streetscape? And a lot of those questions are design questions, they're programming questions. You have to have space that works to do that, to make that kind of connection. But I think it's really important to to the issue you're raising, right? Because without creating those kinds of really robust public environments that that touch on both public sector aspects of the space, but also the private sphere and how those things merge together, you won't have spaces that feel inhabited, that feel cared for, that people have a sense of stewardship over, even if it's just to be like, you know, I'm going to report that broken sidewalk because like somebody's paying attention and they're going to fix it. And I want my neighbors to have a safe place to walk or, 
you know, I'm going to, you know, call in because I saw something that looked a little suspicious. And I know that there's somebody who's going to respond and it's going to be respectful when they do. And that's good. I'm doing my part, right? It's like that sense of stewardship is, I believe, the glue that makes neighborhoods safe and happy and livable places. And while we can't solve that entirely through public realm interventions, we have a big role to play in how we how we craft and, and maintain public space to really encourage that. My guess is that there's data that already shows you that. I, I would bet, you can tell me if I'm wrong, that there are certain parts of the city where 311 reports on cracks in the streets and potholes and rats are much higher than in other parts of the city. And, and maybe people feel more like they have more license to, to 311 you or or they know more people know about about that service or what. But are there? I, I would imagine there yeah, are. And absolutely. I would imagine it it is split by poverty levels maybe it it actually depends you know it's it's i, I it's it's not as clear cut as a tie to income at least at least if you look at broadly at, at 301 requests right it's not it's not super it's, there is a correlation with income but it's not it's not the only determinant what's interesting is that there are certain types of issues that are much more likely to be re- reported in wealthier neighborhoods than in other neighborhoods so the sidewalk example is actually a good one of those right we've done and we've done a pretty detailed quantitative analysis of the actual condition of sidewalks and the actual rate of reporting of sidewalk issues. And what we find is that there is very little correlation between the quality of the sidewalks and the rate of reporting, but there's very high correlation on that one with income and wealth in those communities, right? So the wealthier communities bring that issue up more often. But one of the things that that I do hear a lot, right, when I go to community meetings and when I talk to people is, you know, people have a limited bandwidth to everyone, you know, no matter who you are or how much money you have, have a limited bandwidth to engage in civic issues and issues of concern in your neighborhood. And people tend to focus their energy on the things that feel most urgent to them. And so I think the big lesson that I take away from this is we have to make sure that we're not just looking at the things that are urgent for some people, but not for others, but that we have space to talk about the things that are urgent for people in every neighborhood and acknowledging that those may be very different things because it's not that people in Mattapan don't care about their neighborhood. They care deeply about it and they are super engaged, but the sidewalks may not be the thing that they're most focused on. Right. And sometimes actually quite frequently, the things that people are most concerned about don't fit neatly into our governmental categories. Right. When I go to community meetings in some of the lower income neighborhoods in the city, one of the things I hear a lot about is housing prices, displacement, gentrification, right and and sometimes that gets tied back to 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 uh, transportation projects if we rebuild this street is that going to make it so nice that i can't afford to live here anymore right and that's like a real concern it's not something i can address independently as a transportation person but if we say in those meetings oh that's not a transportation problem you got to talk to somebody else about that right like we're failing our constituents because we're not actually listening to the thing that they are most engaged and concerned about. And so we're trying to take a much more holistic approach to bringing those kinds of issues to the table, even when we don't have answers, acknowledging that they're real and trying to make connections with other parts of city government that can, that can be part of that conversation. Um, I want to talk about you started this role during the pandemic when no one was on the streets. And that must have been an interesting purview from your perspective, being the chief of the thing that no one was using. And then we moved through the pandemic and there was a test 
to provide free transportation on the MBTA bus lines, which then got enhanced and expanded when city council passed Mayor Wu's policy and used about $8 million of budget that came from the U.S. government. Yeah, the ARPA funds. The ARPA funds, thank you. And so how is that going? And do you see ways to, as we move back to having spent down the ARPA money and we move back to just using the Boston city budget yearly, can we shift funds so that we can support free MBTA bus passes in perpetuity? So it's going great That's as a pilot, and I think you framed it really well, right? This is about testing something and using this one-time source of funding to to learn and, and truly learn, right? We don't, we don't believe we know all the answers when it comes to transit and transit fares, but it's going great. What our early data has shown is that the experience of bus riders is better. On every qualitative metric we ask them about, people who have ridden the free bus report that it is a better ride. They report that it is faster. They report that it is lower stress. They, perform, they report that it is more reliable. And there is actually some quantitative data to back up some of that, although the size of the impact that people report on the qualitative metrics is actually even larger than the already substantial quantitatively measurable benefits. So there's like a placebo effect to this money? A little bit, a little bit. But I think what it, what it actually reflects, right, is, is some, some dynamics of, of people's transit experience, right? The, 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 thing that, the thing that can make transit really stressful, right, is the, like the boarding experiences on a bus is often the most stressful time, right? You're waiting in a line, you're looking for your pass or your money. The person in line, maybe in front of you, doesn't have the money. They're arguing with the bus driver. There's a set of human interactions that can sometimes be stressful or awkward, right? So this is the moment when people sort of like the, the emotional moment that shapes a lot of people's experience in transit. And when the way it works is all the doors open and you get on and you sit down, like that's a dramatically different experience that I think colors in a really positive way people's overall experience of transit and riding the bus. And I, and I, and I think it's important to say that because it, it is in some ways a placebo effect, but it is also actually, you know, if our goal, right, is to elevate the bus to a mode of transit that more people will use, that people feel serves them well, the emotional experience of that really matters. And so things that we can do to, to, to make it more, more positive are, are important. But there are quantitative benefits that we're seeing from this as well. So we're seeing a substantial reduction in boarding time on the bus. It makes sense, right? You're getting people on faster. You don't have that friction point at the fare box. We're seeing just the the ability of the the bus, especially at congested stations, to kind of quickly move and to stay on schedule, not lose a minute or two here or there, is improved by not having the fare box collection take place. And we saw with in the first six months of the original pilot of the 28, we saw a substantial increase in ridership. Now, some of this was pandemic ridership coming back. But we saw that ridership without substantial delay added to the bus line. When you compare that to other lines that saw substantial, the similar increases in ridership, there's much more added delay. So we, we sort of see all this evidence. We're gathering more that this can really improve the performance of the bus. But I think the bigger idea here, the thing that we're testing, we are testing all these kind of like, you know, in the weeds things. But the bigger thing that we're actually trying to test here is this idea of public transit as a public good. And so what I mean by that is we think about public goods like parks and libraries and schools. 
these are things that, first of all, we would never think of charging for. And if somebody suggested that we start charging an entrance fee to our public parks, everyone would very rightly be up in arms about that. There are things that are they're truly egalitarian. There are things that we know as a communities are available to all of us. They are free. They are ours. We have that sense of stewardship and care and in some cases love for you know these spaces. I mean, I do not spend a ton of time in the local library, although I'm doing it now more than I have young kids, but I remember spending a lot of time in my childhood in the library and I, and I have deep emotional bonds to public libraries as a result of that, even when I'm not there, right? So this idea that these are spaces that are for everyone, that are available to all, that are, that are truly universal, they're, they're very democratic and very egalitarian. When we think about transportation, we think about transit, the mental model we use is of a sort of marketplace where we purchase services, right? And it's like, well, we can buy a car, we can buy a transit pass. And I think the result of that is it sort of put people into camps. I'm a transit user, or I'm a, I'm a driver. And if I'm a driver, I'm not interested in the needs of the transit users. That's their problem. They can buy their thing. They can pay for it. You know, I'm going to pay for my thing. It ignores a lot of the actual subsidies that exist in the transportation system. But, you know, I think this, but the idea here behind fare free bus is to really ask the question, what if we created a transportation service that had the, all the dynamics and characteristics of a public good, of something that was egalitarian, that was for everyone, that had an experience that was good for people, and that encouraged people to say, you know what, maybe I won't drive my car today because I don't want to have to worry about having to find a place to park. And you know what, there's something here, it's for me, I know it's going to be easy, I know I can use it, and it's going to get me where I need to go. Getting more people into that space, changing that frame of reference, and I think that's what gets to that funding question that you asked. I don't think the city budget is ever going to be the place, is not the right place to fund permanent fare-free transit, you know, in the years ahead. But I think that we can start to ask the question for our larger community, our state, even at the federal level, if we as a society or as a city deem that something like the bus should be there for all and that it is the most basic universal access of transportation that we want everyone to have, how do we fund that, right? How do we, you know, we have, there's a lot of different ways that we can fund things. The team needs a lot of funding independent of any fare-free programs or low-income fare programs. We are, you know, the T is in dire need of long-term operational financial support. So we have work to do there. But I think it starts by trying to reframe our conception of this, not as a thing that has to compete for every dollar and every, you know, every trip, but instead as something that is a baseline. It's, it's the right to move in the city. And this is the way we provide it to all. And we are going to, we have the wealth, we have the capacity to fund. And that's, that's the goal of this project. So it's interesting because I, I completely see your point. And at the same time, we can't even do that with the internet. Like we can't even make data flow freely from person to person. And so we still put, it's the heavy lift is on the folks who are most underserved to access the internet. And so then you get to, you know, okay, well, what are the priorities? Which thing do we make free first? And which one affects people more universally? But isn't there also, like, if you look far enough into the future, and I'm curious about your perspective on driverless cars and when they actually might come to fruition and be kind of holistically utilized in a city like Boston, if you look far enough into the future, can't you say, well, you know, if in 20 years or 30 years, we make a commitment to being a driverless 
city, maybe it's 50 years, I don't know. Doesn't that give us like the opportunity to then say, okay, well, if you're going to own a car, we're going to tax you to offset. If the, the city of Boston makes a decision that something like public transportation is a universal good, a public good, and they're bought into that. And we also have these innovations around driverless vehicles, which make it very efficient to move people around. Couldn't you like then impo- like think about new ways to bring income into the city for people who like don't want to choose to do that, but but it would allow you know kind of a new revenue stream to pay for folks who do want to access and, and be bought into all of the you know positive potentials of something like that. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's a it's a really interesting question, and I, I will actually say that you know your point about the internet is an interesting one because. We are actually very close to making internet a public good. Now we're doing it in a very Byzantine, you know, private market <laughs> kind of way, and it has a lot of regulatory complexity and administrative burden associated with it. But right, we have the affordable connectivity program now, which creates a monthly subsidy of thirty dollars a month that is available to you know anyone who sort of meets any number of, of participates in any number of qualifying programs. And it's actually really interesting what happened when we did that is all of the major broadband providers rolled out a $30 a month program that allowed people to get high quality connectivity in the places in the country where it's available at all. There's still some infrastructure issues, but certainly in cities, right, for $30, which means they can get it for free, right? So this is not some like wildly expensive program. Like this is a $14 billion program, which in the scale of the federal budget is tiny. So I think it actually speaks to this larger issue, which is, you know, I won't get on my soapbox about wealth inequality and all of that, but like, we have the money to do the things that deliver basic fundamental public good and public service to people. It is a question of whether we recognize the need and the importance and are willing to say, this is a public good that everyone should have access to. And it took a pandemic for us to actually have that realization as a society, or at least to have the will to act. Uh, when it comes to internet access. But I think that that is really the questions, part of the question we're calling in the in the context of transportation is, what is the basic right to move that everyone in our communities should enjoy? And I actually believe very deeply that we can afford to fund, you know, a free bus service uh, as, as a, you know, as a state or as a, even as a city, although, you know, we, it's not going to happen necessarily through the city budget, right? We have the wealth to do this and it is not an extraordinary amount of money that it would require. It is a question of just, you know, shifting our frame and being willing to do the work of politics to create the, the funding frameworks that, that would go into that. So driverless cars, I mean, there's a ton happening in terms of the technology of transportation right now. It's a wild time. It's a friend of mine who works in the space. She describes it as this sort of Cambrian explosion of new modes and new services and new business models, you know, and it's a lot of factors of battery technology and price drops and connectivity and all of that are, are, are feeding into this. And I think certainly uh, autonomous vehicles are going to be part of that story. I think it's a little unclear exactly what role they will play, but certainly I think there are opportunities for revenue as we look at some of the new services that have emerged. We do not capture even the, the money we would need to address the costs of some of the services that are on our city streets today. So you take Uber and Lyft or DoorDash and the food delivery services, right? These bring some real benefits to people and they have, you know, I'm not saying they shouldn't exist, but 
they externalize an extraordinary cost in congestion, in emissions, uh, the number of empty miles that are driven to pick up someone or something, the safety issues that occur when I have streets in Boston where I will reliably find cars double or triple parked for most of the day doing food delivery pickups, right? That creates a safety issue. So these are real costs and we don't have even the most basic framework to tax or charge these companies and their customers, right, to cover the cost of the of what they impose on society. So I think it's important that we not sort of like, you know, go look look down to the, you know, you know, when everything's autonomous, then we can tax it and, you know, and, and, and have some revenue. I think we have to start with the things that are here today and say, how do we think about the ways in which all of the people, all of the different uses of our, of our road system uh, create costs to society and bring benefits and how to create a tax and, and funding regime that that makes sense for, you know, ensuring some basic public good, basic public rights, basic access that people need to have basic levels of safety that everybody deserves on the road. The last thing I wanted to talk to you about is water. And how do you think of how does that factor into how you think about streets? Do we do we have problems already when we see oceans rise or the river? Does it complicate things right now, sewers, etc.? even today? And do you worry about things becoming more problematic kind of quickly? And how does the city think about solving for, for this issue? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I mean, streets are important for kind of climate in two ways. One is certainly, you know, as transportation is our largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States, second largest in Boston. So we have a lot to do in the world of streets around trying to reduce the change that we are causing to the climate and mitigate some of the worst effects. But I think what you're getting at is like, okay, we we are seeing and we'll continue to see by all accounts some significant change to our climate, to our sea levels, to our storm patterns. And that has really profound impacts on streets. There are already streets in Boston that under certain tidal and weather conditions, we know will flood, right? The king tide. I mean, Morrissey Boulevard, right, is, is, and this has been this way for, you know, a decade that, you know, once or twice a month, there's an electronic message board that goes up and says, expect this road to be closed due to tidal flooding, right? And it's sort of wild when you think about that, we've just sort of accepted that. But, but now imagine that on most of the coastal streets in Boston, not just one, one road. So, I mean, this is a huge issue. And I think there's a bunch of things that we're doing. There's some basic you know, identifying the most vulnerable spots. You know, there's a lot of work. It's both about streets, but also about other property of, you know, creating mitigation and storm surge barriers and raising the, the height of things to reduce the, the risk of coastal flooding uh, that can happen during storm events and, and just overall as sea levels rise. And there's places where like Morrison Boulevard is actually a really good example, although that's a state-owned road, but where that has to get raised and that will both benefit the road, but will also benefit buildings in the surrounding area. The other big thing, though, is storm water, right, which is different from sort of sea level rise because we do expect more frequent intense storms. Uh, the, the sort of range of what a big storm is is going to get wider. So that means our infrastructure for managing water, even inland of the coast, needs to get more robust and more capacious. And streets can play an incredibly important role in that because if you look at your average street, it's just – 
acres and acres of impermeable surface that collects water and runs it into a stormwater system that then can get overloaded and has to deal with that water. It misses the opportunity to infiltrate that water locally. We're missing the opportunity to introduce green infrastructure onto our streets. We have street trees today. We need more of them, but there are other types of green infrastructure, bioswales and verge areas that can both absorb stormwater, but also provide uh, heat island protection that can provide beautification, that can provide shade for a bench. So green infrastructure at its best is really doing a whole bunch of different jobs. And the fact that we have so much public space that right now we haven't, we haven't even asked that question, right, in, in a robust way of how do we convert it to something that can be beneficial for the environment. I think that's really the work that uh, we have ahead. And we're bringing some folks on into our team who really specialize in green infrastructure so we can start to make this part of our regular course of business. So cool. I know we're at time and we didn't really get to the intersection of data, but maybe what are when you're walking to the office every morning, what are the five things you want to know about? Like what kind of data are you collecting where you're like, I really keep an eye on these statistics? Yeah. Um, I mean, some of the things are really just like, how are we performing in terms of delivering basic city services? You know, we've talked a lot about the future and transforming streets, but like you know, Mayor Wu will say, you know, do the big things by getting the little things right. And that ethos is so important, right? If your trash is not picked up reliably, if your streets are not plowed, when we come to you and say, hey, we want to redesign your street, the answer is hell no. You know, I don't even trust you to like do the, the basic stuff, right? So so it's actually really important for me that we are delivering on and, and enhancing the kind of core city services that we provide. We have a lot of metrics around performance as it relates to those things uh, and a lot of investments that we're making. I think the other thing that I'm thinking a lot about, and it, it's sort of not the sexy answer to this question, but it's kind of our internal capacity. And so I'm looking at hiring, I'm looking at vacancies, right? These are things that it is a struggle in the public sector. It's a struggle everywhere to hire and retain people, and we have some particular headwinds. And so we know that if we're going to make change faster, we need more people. We have the budget to do it, but we need to get the people and the team structure in place to do it. And then I think the other thing that's more of a longer term, it's not a daily metric, but it's something that I'm really, really fascinated by, and I don't think anybody has the answer on, is where are we going when it comes to our travel patterns, right? We have... You know, our transportation system has been built around 100 years of assumptions around what a commute is, uh, whose commute we're going to optimize the streets for. And that has all been turned upside down in, a, in, a, in an incredibly profound way. It's banal to say, but it's true, right? Like we have not had a disruption in our travel patterns of this scale since the dawn of the automobile era except maybe during a war, but even then, right? So now the question is like, what does this mean, both in terms of how it shakes out long term? I'm already looking at, you know, the way we do signal timing is we have a weekend pattern and a weekday pattern, but we actually probably need three patterns. We need a, a you know, a weekend, a Monday, Friday pattern, and then, a, a you know, a, a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday pattern. You know, what is, how does it change? So much of, of our road system is built for the peak, the peak commute, that 445 midweek drive. And that's how we decide how much width we need to have for cars, how long the queues can be at a traffic signal is based on that, that you know, like hour long window when it's at its maximum. If that starts to change, if those peaks smooth out, 
that gives us actually potentially incredible potential to start redesigning our streets to say we don't need three lanes here for the five hours a week when it's most congested. We can have two lanes or one lane and have you know green space and a bike lane and a bus lane for the rest of the time. So I think that's the the data that I'm, I'm sort of it's the least clear what the long term is, but I think has is going to have really profound implications for how we design, manage, and maintain our streets in the future. So I'm I'm really trying to learn as much as I can about what is emerging and what we know in that. Yeah, it's great. You're running so many different trials and tests, and and you must be learning so much. It's it's um it's really interesting. I the trial that you just did by shutting down Dartmouth so that you connected the library through the garden there. And you, I think, shut down Newberry Street last year and there were a number of trials run on that. What are those? And, and I just go back to your, you know, your metrics, your qualitative metrics on happiness and with frictionless, you know, onboarding of buses and whatever else is happening there that make people happier. Are you seeing these things raise happiness in the city of Boston? I mean, anecdotally, absolutely. It's hard to quantify it. You know, some of these, the scale of some of these tests are small enough that it's hard to really quantify the happiness level. It's a hard thing to measure as well. But what I see, you know, when we go to these, when we put on these events, you know, we, we survey people, we talk to people, we have planners out there just kind of like, hey, what do you think of this? Right. And, you know, there's just a sense of like, you know, there's a sense of possibility. You see people just kind of like, Wander, you know, with Copley Connect that you mentioned, I, I would stand up there and I would just watch, you know, somebody obviously in business attire just getting off work. Maybe they're headed to the train. And like you'd see people, some people just walk through, some people don't even notice they're on their phone. But you see people kind of like walk in, kind of give this quizzical look. Then just like sit down in a chair and just like people watch. And, you know, it's that, it's that kind of thing where, where when people start to see and experience their public space in different ways as place for, for recreation, for human connection, for play, that we can start to open up a different conversation. Streets are not just for lounging around and they never will be nor should they be, right? But the idea that they are only for driving, only for storing our cars, only for walking from point A to point B, I think really misses an incredible potential of public space. And so all of these pilots are really about both learning the sort of, you know, what does it do to traffic? And we're getting traffic count data from that closure, but also like giving that, get, learning that qualitative information and, and get, giving people just the experience and the, the, the perspective shift so that hopefully what we do propose something that's more substantial or more citywide that more people have seen that they're like oh yeah i remember that thing and i would love that in my neighborhood Um, i think a good example of this actually is outdoor dining right this was something that was implemented on an emergency basis during the pandemic to keep restaurants afloat and by and large when we you know the surveys that we've seen and the conversations we've had with people you know they love it right they're like why would this ever go away why did we have this before right so i think i think that's actually a great example of what how a sort of perspective perspective shift can happen and can really fundamentally give people a new conception of how to use public space and i just think there's so much potential there so we're going to keep testing we're going to keep learning we're going to keep listening to people's feedback some things we're going to do and they won't work that well and that's okay and we'll move on and do new things but you know we have we have huge potential ahead of us so great yasha thank you so much for spending time with me today this is really terrific jill it was a pleasure it was such a wonderful discussion and such thoughtful uh, thoughtful questions so thank you very much for inviting me on Thank you for listening to my conversation with Yasha Franklin-Hodge. 
The quality of our streets impacts our lives every day, and Yasha is focused on finding ways to make our streets and our city safer and more livable. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.